Okay, good morning. We're ready to start. I'm glad you're here. All right, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about uh, assimilation, uh, but not in an academic way, <laughs> thank God. Uh, more just, uh, what, what does it mean to uh, live life as a, as a Jew in particular uh, when we're such a tiny portion of uh, the world's population? And especially to live um, outside the land of Israel, where we're even uh, a smaller part of the population. You know, I've seen, I've seen studies where people have asked uh, crowds, um, you know, just people on the street, how large is the state of Israel, or how many Jews do you think there are in the world? And people have crazily distorted notions of how many Jews there are in the world, or how large the state of Israel is, for instance. They, they think it's, you know, a giant country. And why shouldn't they think that? Why shouldn't they think that Jews are a huge part of the population uh, numbers-wise in the world and that the land of Israel is, is, is a major tract of land because it's on the front page of the newspapers all the time? So it would make sense that, it's, it, uh, that it would be bigger than it is. And yet, when people find out that it's like teeny tiny, that it's basically the size of Rhode Island, and that uh, the number of Jews in the world are, I, I, I think the, the last number that I heard was one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. One-tenth of one percent. And I think in America it's two percent of the general population. Um, you can double-check that. I'm not sure that's exactly right. But, but anyway, it's, it's tiny is the point. Um, and uh, so it's a particular challenge. And of course, the greatest ex- exemplar of what it means to live in exile is Joseph, Joseph at Sadiq. He's, he's really the master. He was the first Jew to live in exile. All the other Jews were in Israel, and he was going it alone outside in Egypt, which was really sort of like the most corrupt civilization. And yet he was able to remain at Sadiq, a holy person in this environment, and somehow just miraculously, through God's hand, rise, rise to the top. Um, so there are, all sorts of, there are all sorts of lessons there. Let me begin with a, a gematria. Yosef is the same gematria as the word Zion, Zion, which is an amazing thing, because here Yosef is the one who lives outside of the land, and yet the sort of the, 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 the numerical equivalent of his name, which is we know the spiritual DNA of a person, his spiritual DNA while he's living outside the land, is Zion, is Zion, which is, you know, Yerushalayim. That's, that's the capital of Israel. So, in other words, he, even outside the land, remains tied to the land and gives others, all future generations, the ability to remain a Jew in exile, to remain tied to the land, even as we're outside of the land. So, you know, I... I I once I was in Israel not too long ago, and I was doing this uh, program, and somehow the some newspaper in Israel got hold of it, and, and they did a little interview with me, and I uh, I said to them something that kind of still sticks in my head, which is that everyone has to understand that that the land of Israel itself it's not a location, it's not some ink on a map. The land of Israel, the earth of Israel, the physical location of Israel is as much a part of a Jew as your own arms and legs. That's, that's, that's part of you. It's not where you reside, and it could be anywhere, just as long as your flag is planted over there. It's literally part of you. 
So again, Yosef, the same as Zion, he remains tied no matter where he is. And so he has this aspect of completion. Of course, that's not a substitute for us being there. We all have to get there and we all have to live there. But, but short of that, to remain tied is, is very, is very uh, important. Okay, so now let's go a little bit more into this. And you see something that, that I always liked. We're going to go in the Rashi and we'll look at the Balaturim for a moment. And, um, and see what, what Yosef says to his brothers once he reveals himself. And it's sort of an interesting paragraph because, you know, you could take it the wrong way. But when we look at what the sources are saying on a deeper level, you'll see it's, it's the opposite of maybe what it sounds like at first. He says, he's trying to reassure them. They're, they're aghast. They, 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 they can't fathom the fact that the person who's been putting them through this prolonged anxiety attack is actually their brother who means well for them. I mean, they can't absorb this in their brains. And so he has to reassure them. And he says to them, and I'm reading now from, uh, from Parshas Vayigash. It's uh, chapter 45, verse 12. He says, Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Binyamin, that it is my mouth that is speaking to you. Therefore, tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you saw. And then it goes on, but you must hurry and bring my father down here. So it, it, it might sound, God forbid, a little bit arrogant. Here, Yosef is saying, look, tell my father about my glory, how I'm the king. Look, tell him about how important I am. Right? That's, that seems to be the, the simple meaning. But, but we know that it's saying something more. So the sources say something I think very surprising. He says, Behold, your eyes see. Now remember, they still couldn't believe that this was really Yosef. They, they, they couldn't imagine it. So what is it? So what does Rashi say on Behold, your eyes see? That he showed them his circumcision. And, and then it says, And that it's my mouth that's speaking to you. And Rashi continues that I'm speaking to you in Hebrew. He was speaking to them in Hebrew at that point. He had stopped this masquerade of being this Egyptian taskmaster and speaking to them in Egyptian because really no one really knew Hebrew. Even Paro, who was supposed to be a master of all of the languages of the world, didn't know Hebrew. It says Yosef taught him Hebrew and that when Paro found out that there was a language that he didn't know, he swore Yosef to keep it a secret that he didn't know this because it would sort of like hurt his reputation as a deity, you know? So, um, so it was a rare thing to be able to speak Hebrew. So he spoke Hebrew to them. He showed them his, his, brisk, his brisk Kodesh, his, uh, his circumcision, and they're like, you know, that's a lock. That's, that's a command. It's, it is Yosef. That, uh, who else could that be? It's, it's really Yosef. So what he was saying to them was, my glory, my glory is not the government position that I've, attained. My glory is the fact that I've remained a Jew, that I've remained committed to our ways, even in this environment, even alone in this exile, in this corrupt environment. I've maintained the ways of our Holy Father Yaakov and Yitzchak and, and Abraham and our Holy Mothers. So, so that's what he was telling them was, was, was his glory. And that's what he wanted to have them communicate to Yaakov. 
the, the Balaturim adds to this. It's the same, same idea um, on, on, on the uh, words, your eyes see, behold, your eyes see. So, um, so in Hebrew, it's Enechem Ra'os. So the Balaturim says the, 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 the numerical equivalent of those two words um, is equivalent to that, I have shown you the circumcision. <laughs> the actual words themselves spell it out exactly, which is amazing. Not only that, but that my mouth is speaking to you. So he, the Balaturim goes even deeper beyond the fact that it's just in Hebrew. It's even more specific. The gematria of ki fi hamidaber alechem, that my mouth is speaking to you, the gematria of that phrase is, is the equivalent of the egla rufa, regarding the, the egla rufa, the, the decapitated calf, which is known as um, the last topic of Torah that Yaakov was learning with Yosef. Um, and um, so, so that was his sign, that was a sign to Yaakov that he, that, he hadn't, that he hadn't forgotten any of the Torah that they had learned together. And not only that, but he was sending them a specific sign that he even remembered the very last thing that we learned together, so that Yaakov should be reassured that Yosef really had maintained his holy stature. Okay, so, so all of this is to say that, that Yosef did it. That he really did it. That, it that, that he maintained his identity in an alien culture. And that's what we're talking about today. We said that we wanted to talk about this notion of how do you, how do you not get absorbed? How do you maintain your ways? And let's deepen the question right now. Because, because we, know, we know that the idea is not to... Um, as much as an aspect... Of, of maintaining our ways is to be apart from other cultures. We also know that we have to be a light unto the nations, that that's, that that's the whole point, which means to live among the nations and to, and to raise them up by revealing what we've learned from God, about the holy ways of the Torah. This is also part of our mission. So, so this presents a conflict. Well, what's the bottom line? Am I supposed to maintain my ways? If I'm just supposed to maintain my ways, then the easiest way to do that is to sort of have a ghetto mentality and to live apart from everyone else. But if I'm supposed to be a light unto the nations, how, how do I do that? So it seems like a contradiction. Or put another way, if, if I'm actually outside the land of Israel... And, and I'm living in what's essentially an, an alien co- country. Um, you know, right now, just say as an aside, politically speaking, I don't know if you're following the, uh, the headlines, but, but uh, there's a, a resurgence in the, uh, in the Republican field of presidential candidates. Huckabee right now is, is sort of zooming to the top. And, you know, there's something called a paper trail. A paper trail is, uh, means when someone has written extensively on certain topics and um, their opinions are going to be known. So he has a lengthy, gigantic paper trail that no one's really looked into yet, coming from the fact that he is a, a minister and he's given intensely religious speeches 
on, on subjects about essentially making America Christian and all the rest, which is fine for a minister to say, but we'll see how the electorate responds uh, to him as a presidential candidate. But, but quite striking um, turns of phrases, which I, I won't even mention right now, but those will soon be in the headlines. So, so the, the, the point is, the point is that how do, we, how do we maintain, how do we walk this line? So Rebbe Nachman talks about it, and I'd like to give my understanding of this story, because I think he's addressing this, this topic uh, directly, and, um, and I'll read it to you. It's a story of his called The Tainted Grain, and it's uh, one of my favorite ones of his stories, and it's, you'll see it's, it's uh, unlike many of his, these are more his parables, it's very, very short, but you'll see it's sort of like mind-bending, because it, it seems to have like lots of twists and turns, and even within a paragraph. By the way, I'll just say as an aside, I read somewhere that uh, on, a, on a literary level, of course, Rebbe Nachman was not just writing stories to entertain, but they're filled with Kabbalistic references, and they're, he, he meant them as, as ways to teach Torah directly. He felt that his Torah, at a certain point, it was almost impossible for him to communicate it on a level of just... Communi- just teaching Torah. And so he needed the vehicle of stories in order to address all of the multiple levels that he was trying to get across at once. But that just, now, that aside, they can be read as amazing pieces of writing as well. And, and I saw somewhere that one of his literary uh, influences, mm-hmm. in other words, what, someone who he influenced on a literary level was Franz Kafka, which is... Um, Interesting for you English majors out there. So, anyway, here's the tainted grain. A king once told his prime minister, who is also his good friend, I see in the stars that whoever eats any grain that grows this year will go mad. So, this was a real thing. There's a a certain um, uh, fungi of the ergo family that attacks grain and can induce madness craziness in those people who eat it. So this is a, a, a known historical thing. So, so he says, I see in the stars that whoever eats any grain that grows this year will go mad. What is your advice? The prime minister replied, we must put aside enough grain so that we will not have to eat from this year's harvest. The king objected, but then we will be the only ones who will be sane. Everyone else will be mad. Therefore, they will think that we are the mad ones. It is impossible for us to put aside enough grain for everyone. Therefore, we too must eat this year's grain. But we will make a mark on our foreheads so that at least we will know that we are mad. I will look at your forehead and you will look at mine. And when we see this sign, we will know that we are both mad. Sounds a little like a Borges story, no? So, I wonder if Borges read Rebbe Nachman. I'm sure, I'm sure he did, right? I'm sure he did. He read everything, right? Um, okay, so what does this mean? So, I would like to say that it's, it's exactly what we've been talking about up until now. You see, the king and his prime minister, they're the ones who have the truth. They have the truth. And they have to deal with the idea of living with a populace who's crazy, who doesn't have the truth. 
So what is their position going to be vis-a-vis interacting with the populace where they have the truth and the others don't have the truth? And even more, where those who don't have the truth will look at them as the crazy ones. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like our situation? We have the Torah, and the, other, and the, the, the outside world looks at you and say, well, why aren't you eating that? Well, because um, it says I shouldn't eat that. <laughs> what, are you crazy? You know how good it tastes? So, so, the answer isn't, so let them think we're crazy, we'll think they're crazy, and then hopefully we won't kill each other. That's, that's not the answer. Because the king is not satisfied with that. The prime minister gives him that advice. He says, we'll set, enough, set aside enough grain that we'll be able to remain sane, they'll all go crazy, and that's what it is. In other words, as Jews in exile, you know what we're going to do? We'll just set up our walls, we'll live by ourselves. If they think we're crazy, that's what it is. Now, what's wrong with that? And I'll tell you what's wrong with that. Because Rabbi Nachman comes out seemingly, based on this story, if I'm understanding it properly, seemingly he doesn't like that, that answer. He says, no, we've got to eat the grain too. But we've got to make a mark on each other's foreheads so that we know that, that, we know that we've eaten the grain. Okay, so, so let's take a step back, because it gets deeper now. You see, it's not enough simply to have the truth. Part of having the truth is sharing the truth. If you just have the truth and you don't share the truth, that's contrary to the truth. There's a, a, a principle, they, they, they spell it out in Hasidus, it's called a tzaddik impelts. That means a tzaddik, a holy person in a, in a fur coat. So what does that mean? So, so you see, there are two ways to warm up a room. Or to get warm in a room. One way is everyone's cold. You put on a fur coat and you're warm and next to them. You know, if they don't have if they don't have what to keep them warm, whose problem is that? That's their problem. The tzaddik is warm and that's it. Okay, that person, that philosophy is derided in in Hasidus. The other way is what if the tzaddik makes a fire? The tzaddik makes a fire, then the whole room gets warm. Okay, so that's, 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 that's our way. That's the proper way. So, so the warmth is shared. So again, we have this problem. What, what are they going to do? If they, if they just eat the untainted grain by themselves, they, they remain sane, but everyone goes crazy, and everyone who's crazy thinks they're crazy. But we know we have to be a light unto the nations. So... And just to have the truth and not share the truth is a contradiction to the truth. So listen to what they do. They decide to eat the grain. But they make a mark on each other's forehead that when they look at each other, and I wonder if the mark, because there's all sorts of references here that I'm sure I'm not getting, but perhaps one that is there, a mark on the forehead, I wonder if that's not a reference to the tefillin shel rosh, the head tefillin. You know, perhaps. Um, but we'll make a mark on each other's forehead so that we'll know 
at least that we're mad. So in other words, if we must live in exile in order to to spread the truth, which is the truth, that's fine, but but then how are we going to not disappear? Because we'll make signs among each other. We'll make signs among each other that will remind us that we're still in exile. And so this is the way. This is the way. And by the way, you have it in this Parsha. How do you do it? There's only one way. There's only one way to do it, guys. And that's through the studying of the Torah. That is the sign. It's through studying the Torah. That's how it happens. And in fact, it says that when um, Yaakov is bringing his family down into... Excuse me. When Yaakov is bringing his family down into Egypt, the famous thing is, the first thing he does is, he sends Yehuda ahead of the entire family to set up a yeshiva in Goshen. So that there's, a, there's an institution of Torah learning waiting for them when they get there. And that's how they're able to survive. That's how we're able to survive the enslavement of Egypt. By having that there. And this is the oath. This is the sign. So, so now, what about all of us in our, in, our, in, our personal, in our personal exiles? You know, I'm talking about uh, on, on a macro level up until now. How, how what are... What are what our approach is as a nation. But now let's switch gears and try to figure out how individually we can get through it. So, so I saw something. I want to read you something from the Sfas Um And uh, this, is, this is from a wonderful book. Uh, it's called The Torah Treasury from Art Scroll. Uh, I recommend this. It's a really nice uh, culling of different um, ideas on the Parsha. And uh, we're talking about when Yehuda approaches Yosef at the beginning of the Parsha, by Yigash, right? And um, at this point, Yosef is still disguised and everything is hanging in the balance. Remember, Yaakov Avinu understands that for his mission, and his mission is the culmination of the mission of, of Abraham and Yitzchak, it all culminates in Yaakov. And for his mission of planting Torah into the world to be successful, all of his children have to be tzaddikim. Now, at this point, he, also, he already believes that Yosef is dead, and now Benjamin, who, who's the last surviving child, he, he thinks of Rachel, has been, has been taken prisoner by this evil Egyptian taskmaster who we really know is Yosef, but he's in disguise still. And it seems like the entire mission of the Jewish people is about to fall apart. So when Yehuda approaches Yosef right now, he doesn't know it's Yosef, he's trying to save the entire mission of the Jewish people from the time of Abraham right now. So this is like everything is on the line right now. Now, if you look at what happens, there are a few interesting things about what Yehuda does. The first thing he does is he's talking in Hebrew, which in itself is interesting because he doesn't know that Yosef understands Hebrew. Right? We find out later that he does. And they say we have a Torah principle 
hold that words that leave the heart enter the heart. You know, my grandfather said one time, uh, the truth is the best lie. Right? Maybe he was quoting someone I don't know. But you know, those are words to live by. If you don't know what to say, just talk from your heart. You know, that's, that's, that's the best thing. So just the very fact that he's talking in Hebrew and he's not even sure that he's going to be understood. But you see that his, his approach is effective. But anyway, the Sfasemis points out something very interesting here. And then we're going to go a little bit more, more deeply into it. A careful reading, I'm reading from, uh, it's page 108 from the Torah Treasury. A careful reading of Yehuda's entreaty makes one realize that he added no new plea. He merely, repeat, he merely repeated the chain of events that had, had transpired up until this point. What did he gain by this? In other words, he, he's not adding anything. He's just telling Yosef what he already knew. So why is this going to be persuasive? How is this going to be helpful? According to the Sfas Emes, painful and stressful situations last only until one realizes that everything is the will of God. Who does, who does only what is good for people, even when they cannot perceive it. So, so I once read, I once read that, that all depression, and I'm not talking about clinical depression right now, I'm just talking about sadness, all, all sadness emanates from one place, which is that a person forgets that they're standing before God who's good. And it's, it's very easy for us because the, we live in this sort of like this washing machine. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you know, or, you know, it's like we're in the middle of like a Las Vegas casino constantly. That is our, that's, that's what it means, the modern world. It's crazy. It's so easy to forget that there's, that there's oneness behind the multiplicity and that God is good. You know, we have this amazing interplay in Torah between the letter Ayin and the letter Aleph. The letter Ayin, Ayin means I, because the I just sees the outside, doesn't see the inside. See, this is one of the reasons when we say Shema Yisrael, we cover our eyes. Because what we want to do, when we say, when we're declaring that God is one, what we want to do is, we want to just get past a superficial understanding of what's going on in the world. This is the covering of our eyes, the closing of our eyes, and get to the inside of what's going on, the oneness that permeates everything. Ayin also is the numerical value of 70. There's 70 nations in the world. So it represents, Ayin represents the I and the multiplicity of nations and the illusion that there's a power other than the oneness of God. Then you have this letter Aleph, which is the letter one, which stands for God. It's the oneness of God. So it's for those who have eyes to see, you have to be able to see the Aleph behind the Ayin. And interestingly, they're both silent letters. You know? You know, we say in our davening right before Shema, we say, Vaha'eri Nenu. That means enlighten our eyes. Vaha'er, er, or is the letter Aleph. Light is the letter Aleph. When one becomes enlightened 
That means that they have the Aleph of the word Or. They see the light. They see the oneness. Einenu is eyes. That's ayin. In other words, what does it mean, God, enlighten our eyes? Take the Aleph, Baha'er, the Aleph of Or, and put it over the ayin of our eyes. Show us the oneness that exists among the multiplicity. And let us see the oneness. So where does sadness come from? Sadness comes from forgetting that you stand before the oneness and that God is good wherever you are. Now listen to this. Continues the Sfasemis. This was Yehuda's purpose in rehashing the events. He wanted to bring himself to the realization that God had engineered it all for the benefit of Jacob's family and the emerging Jewish people. Amazingly, they have a footnote here and they bring a medrash. It says, Breshis Rabba 91.10. And it says, listen to this, it's amazing. It says that Yaakov Avinu never spoke inappropriately, except for, in this instance, where he said to, uh, where he said, Why do you treat me so ill by telling the man that you have another brother? In other words, when, when the brothers went down for food, because there's a famine in the land, they go down to get food, and Yaakov, uh, Yosef rather, recognizes them as the brothers, but they don't recognize Yosef. And so Yosef starts grilling them, starts saying, you're spies. And, uh, you know, he uses the word maraglim. Now, when we talk about the maraglim, Usually, the people that we're talking about are those people that Moshe Rabbeinu, much later, sent out to look at the land of Israel. And we're still in exile because of the spies. We're still in exile because, as Reb Shlomo said, they sinned with their eyes. They saw the outside of the land, the superficiality of the land, but they didn't see the inner goodness of the land of Israel. So, interestingly... Yosef says to his brothers, you're spies. Meaning what? Meaning all this harm, all this sin, all this hatred that exists between us. It's because you saw the outside of me, but you never saw who I really am inside. So, so Yosef starts grilling them because he wants to see the whole twists and turns that he puts the brothers through is he wants to see, are they going to treat Benjamin, Benjamin, are they going to treat him like they treated Yosef? And if he sees that they'll treat Benjamin differently, then he'll see that they really did tshuva. They really are correcting their ways. So he wants, he wants to see, are they going to protect him? So he says, he starts asking them questions, and they say, well, we're not spies, we're all sons of, of one father, and there's another one of us who's, who's back home. And then Yosef jumps on this. He goes, okay, I'm going to see if you're telling the truth or not. Bring him down here. Now, we know Yaakov has already lost one son. Rachel only had two, two children. He's already seemingly lost one of them. He'll never part with the other one. And now when they say to Yaakov, listen, we're going to all starve to death. We're all going to die unless we bring down Benjamin. 
Now all of a sudden, Yaakov realizes he has no choice. He has to, he has to let go of Binyamin. But he says to them, why did you do such ill to me? Why did you do this to me? Why did you put me into this situation where now I, 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 I risk losing my only remaining son of, uh, of Rachel? So now listen to this. So now this is what the Medrash is saying. The Medrash is saying, now that sounds like a, you must admit, that sounds like a, a fair thing for Yaakov to say under those circumstances, right? The Medrash says Yaakov Avino only said one wrong thing in his life. And this was it. Listen to what the Medrash says. Something amazing. Hashem says, says re- remarks, not, not to Yaakov, but re- remarks about Yaakov saying this. I am busy establishing a kingdom over Egypt, and he says, why did you treat me so ill? In other words, this is all part of a much bigger story. This is part of a bigger story where all of Egypt, the biggest kingdom, is going to be vanquished by the Jewish people. And they're going to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. And this is a critical little element of the whole thing coming, the whole plan coming into effect. God is bringing good into the world. And you're calling it ill, Yaakov? Okay, so now, at a moment of personal torment, come on, in a moment of personal torment, how are you supposed to see the giant picture? Okay, so now, let's go back to the Sasemis, and then we'll see it in the words of the opening of the Parsha. Again, according to the Sfasemis, painful and stressful situations last only until one realizes that everything is the will of God, who does, who does only what's good for people, even when they cannot perceive it. This was Yehuda's purpose in rehashing the events. He wanted to bring himself to the realization that God had engineered it all for the benefit of Jacob's family and the emerging Jewish people. Okay. So now let's see that in the beginning of the Parsha. It says, now remember, it's all on the line right now. Yehuda is approaching Yosef. Yosef is still disguised. But after this speech, pours out his heart. And they say that Yehuda, Sfasemis is saying that Yehuda was pouring out his heart in order to remind himself that God is good. Rabbi Nachman says, that you have to talk to God. Every one of us has to talk to God like he's a good friend. You see, I just want to build on that. It's contained in Rabbi Nachman's words, but just to make it explicit. I always like to point out that, that the, biggest, the biggest danger, the biggest danger, and what separates the, those people who would like to connect and are good intention for those people who are in a state of dvekis, which means real holy attachment to God on an ongoing basis, which is, which is the goal of all of this, by the way. I mean, this is, this is the state we're supposed to be in. Is that the big difference is that people who are, are more into it, God is not an abstraction. God cannot be an abstraction. Meaning, a person's consciousness of the world cannot be, must not be, 
There are books and there are bridges and there are ceilings and there are toys and there's pencils and there's, you know, there's deli meat and there's God and there's Kansas and there's, you know, baseball. Wait a second. What? And there, you, you put God on the list of just things there are in the world? But this is, this is, the, way mo- this is the way most people think. That God is one of the things that exist in the world. Everything comes from God. There's only God. That's all there is. That's all there is. It's not one of the things that exists. So, so what is the greatest tool in the world for not allowing God to be an abstraction, just an idea? The greatest tool is what Rabbi Nachman says, to talk to God like he's your friend. Now, of course, there are times where we also have to understand God is also God. I mean, one, one has to maintain a sense of yira, you know, awe as well. But, but that, that will come. First, first, that essential relationship and connection has to be made. And, you know, people who live in Los Angeles or have an extra advantage because we have cars, right? (laughs) And so, you know, it's hard to talk to God on the subway (laughs) because it's, you know, you're surrounded by people. But, you know, we have these little tiny bubbles (laughs) which are sort of like Hispotidus chambers, you know what I mean? They're just like, you know, it's like, you know, little little bubbles of meditation that that we've been uh, afforded, you know? It's like, you know, in Russia, you know, they had a forest. So that's our own little forest, our, our Hondas or whatever it is. Um, yeah. And now, you know, you see something also, which is like uh, a great gift that God has given us for uh, closeness, which is Bluetooth. You know, you know, people walk down the street and it looks like they're madmen. They're talking to themselves. And then you see they have a little attachment on their ear. So, you know what? Just, just assume. So, you know, how, do, how does anyone know that I don't have Bluetooth? Right. right? <laughs> so, or the speaker in the car. You know, they have, they have, uh, that's right, that's right. So, so God has created this uh, through technology has, 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 has sort of changed people's perceptions where one doesn't have to be embarrassed anymore, you know. Um, so where do we see it in the opening of this Parsha? It says, Yehuda approaches Yosef, and Yosef is still disguised. Yehuda then pours out his heart, and then Yosef takes off his disguise. So, so this is, this is a, on a deeper level, this is our relationship with God and events that confound us. When we approach a situation where it seems God is disguised or that we forget that God is behind it, we talk about it, like the Sfasemist mentions, that the rehashing of the events leads us to remembering that God is in the world. We remember, because the only reason why we got sad to begin with is because we forgot that God was behind us and that God is good. We pour out our hearts. We remember, oh yeah, God is behind us. And then Yosef, representing the concealed 
aspect of God lowers his veil and then we go, oh yeah, God, okay, yeah, it's you, fantastic, thank you. Okay, I lost it for a moment. I forgot, but but there you are. Um, so, so we see it on two levels. We see it on the macro level, and we did the Rebbe Nachman story together, where you see how as a nation, we can't just isolate ourselves, but we have to have reminders. We have to, we have to learn Torah, and that that was the first thing that, that Yaakov did when, when, he, when, when he readied the Jewish people to go down into exile. He set up a yeshiva with Yehuda, and, um, and we see it on an individual level, that we have to constantly, we have to constantly talk to ourselves, talk to God, and then the veils come down, and we see, we see that God is behind it all. I want to end with one thought. I just um, saw uh, Rabbi Wolfson, uh, he, didn't, he didn't explain it, it, this will be my explanation, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is... Uh, consistent with whatever he had in mind. That um, it says that 70 people, 70 people went down into Egypt. That when Yaakov took his family, his family consisted of 70 people. So, um, and then it lists the names. So it's a famous thing that, the, that, that we've been looking into, you know, since the Torah was given. We count the names that have been given, and there's 69 names. There's not 70 names. So everyone wants to know who's the 70th name. How can it say 70 when it just lists 69? So there's different understandings. One, one understanding is that Yaakov, who's not counted in the count, so Yaakov himself should be counted in the count. That's one explanation. Another explanation is that it's Serach. Serach is the one who um, shared the good news with Yaakov Avinu that Yosef is still alive. Now if you think about it, to tell Yaakov that Yosef is still alive after all of those years could induce a heart attack, right? I mean, how do you tell someone that an older man, he's like, you know, he's over 100 years old. How do, you, how do you tell someone that big a piece of news? You have to do it in a very special, gentle way. So Sarah played the harp and she said it over in a very beautiful way. And it says that as a reward... Yaakov Avinu blessed her that she should live forever. So, so the way I saw it explained through Rabbi Wolfson was that it's like when she got this brocha to live forever, that it was like she, she got a little bit of the spirit of Eliyahu, who also lives forever. And so that she's counted, that she's the 70th. And there's another opinion on a very deep level that you count Hashem as the 70th. Because Hashem went down with us into exile. And, and so that, that should be counted as the 70th. But probably the most famous explanation uh, uh, of who the 70th person is, is that it's Yocheved. Now, now Yocheved, uh, everyone knows, is the mother of Moshe and Aaron and Miriam. So Yocheved is, you know, you know, you know, she's, she's like, that's, she's, yeah, I mean, who, who beats Yochebed, you know? So, so interestingly, Yochebed wasn't born yet, 
but her mother was pregnant with her. So that's why she's not counted in the count, but she was still in utero. So she gets counted, so it, it works out perfectly. And then when they say, and they, they go further in, in the Gomorrah, they say that she was actually born as they were entering through the walls of Egypt. In other words, at the moment that they're entering Egypt is when she came out. So, so, so we have to understand something. And this is a very big point. This is a very big point. You see, one of the, one of the aspects of exile, one of, one, an aspect of the essence of exile is that a person is so immersed in exile that they, that they don't know anything else anymore. That they think that it's normal. Um, I once heard an explanation that just got me, which was, you know, we talk about when Moshe Rabbeinu showed up and, and, uh, on the scene in Egypt and said, okay, this is after the burning bush. Okay, everyone, it's time for the redemption. Let's go. The, um, the Torah says that we were on the 49th level of impurity and that had it been another moment we would have sunk to the 50th level of impurity and then we never would have been able to get out because that's the bottom rung. So, so there are different explanations of what does that mean, the 50th level of impurity. And one explanation that I heard was, which I love this explanation actually because it's so the opposite of mystical. You know? is that Moshe would have shown up and would have said, if he had waited a moment longer, or if God had waited a moment longer, um, Moshe would have shown up and said, well, guys, come on, it's time to be redeemed. And they would have answered back, redeemed from what? Well, no, you, you guys are, this isn't normal. You guys have a greater mission. You guys are supposed to accomplish something in the world. Uh, we, we don't know what you're talking about. You see, that would have been the bottom level of impurity, the complete forgetting that you are supposed to do anything more in this world. It's not like, you know what, I know I have to do something more and I haven't been able to do it. That's an aspect of exile. But to forget that you even have to do something more, that's the bottom, bottom, bottom. So, so what we sometimes forget is that exile only exists because of redemption. In other words, exile is not a thing in and of itself. Exile is just for the purposes of redemption. So whenever we go into exile, redemption has to be there beforehand. It must be there. Because exile does not exist. It doesn't have an independent existence of redemption. You see this in a very interesting way in the calendar, by the way. Which is, what is the day of exile? In the entire calendar, it's Tishabov, the day that marks the whole destruction. We also have a Mebrish that Mashiach is born on Tishabov. Not only that, but on an even more sort of like technical level, you see something amazing, which is that the first day of Pesach, if you ever want to know what day of the week Tishabov falls out on, look at the first day of Pesach. It's always the same day. And Pesach is the redemption from Egypt. If the Pesach Seder is a Tuesday night, I don't know if it can fall on a Tuesday night, but just for argument's sake, if it's a Tuesday night, 
Tisha B'Av will be on a Tuesday night. Whatever night of the week, Tisha B'Av will be on that night of week. Because you can't have exile independent of redemption. So now with this in mind, understand the amazingness that Yocheved, that Yocheved is born as they're entering into Egypt. Yocheved who contains Moshe Rabbeinu within her, Aaron Akoin within her, Miriam the prophetess within her, comes out as soon as they enter into Egypt. And now listen to this on a deeper level even. You see it even on the level of numbers. Which is that Yocheved is the Gematria 42. And for those of you who have been following the saga of the number 42 in these classes, there's a lot of 42s. But I'll point you to one right now, which is that there are 42 travels that we go through in the desert. And of course, that represents a microcosm of the entire story of world history, going from Egypt into Israel. That's, 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 that's the whole story of the world right there in one sentence. And there are 42 different stopping points. And isn't it interesting that Yocheved, that Yocheved is the number 42, because she represents going down into Egypt and yet having the deliverance and the redemption from the exile within her simultaneously. In other words, her, her name is the numerical equivalent which spans the entire cycle from exile to redemption. And we should all see it speedily with our own eyes soon. Thanks for coming.